The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Coming to God's Word tonight, uh, the last of three sermons that we have been doing from the book of Isaiah, looking to Isaiah the prophet to shape our hearts as we prepare to worship this coming servant of the Lord who will bring salvation to his people. If you'd turn with me tonight, we're in Isaiah chapter 50, a short chapter focusing again on the servant of the Lord. We'll read the 11 verses of Isaiah chapter 50 together. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garden. A moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled, and this you will have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Let's pray. Father, this is a deeply hopeful passage, but also a warning passage. I pray that you would apply your word to our hearts and give us new reasons, renewed reasons, to rejoice in our Savior tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're at another passage of prophecy tonight, and whenever we come to a passage of prophecy that that looks ahead to what God is going to do in history, it's easy just to jump right in and focus on what God is going to do in the future. 
But if we jump straight to what God is going to do, we'll actually miss a significant part of the meaning of the passage and the emotional weight of the passage because we'd be missing the situation and the context to which God is speaking. I think imagine, uh, I was imagining this uh, on a Wednesday night as I was preparing my sermon. I was imagining walking down the hall in the church here on a Wednesday night and overhearing a father say to his daughter, how about you and I go out now and get some ice cream? And I thought, well, I'd have a generally positive view of that father is doing something nice with his daughter. But I'd only understand that conversation fully if I knew the backstory and know that that daughter had just been crying and saying about how a friend had rejected her that night and how she'd failed a, a math test that afternoon and she felt rejected and alone and like a failure. And if you know that backstory, then the father's words take on a whole new light. And so for us to understand this passage, we have to not only understand what's coming and what God is saying is going to happen, we also have to know who is God speaking to and what is happening to them. It's the same way here with with prophecies. And so it's so important for us to know in Isaiah 50 that Isaiah is in the midst of an extended section of prophecy that is anticipating the forces of Babylon coming on Jerusalem, destroying the walls of God's city, sacking the Lord's temple, and hauling the Jewish people off into captivity. Now Isaiah is not prophesying during those events themselves. But his prophecy is coming in events that are beginning the movement of God's plan towards judgment. Isaiah has delivered prophecies that judgment is coming. And now in this passage, he's anticipating that judgment. And he's anticipating what God's people will be saying and feeling and thinking when they have seen what God has done. And I think we can imagine it, can't we? If we are an Israelite thinking about being taken captive into Babylon. And you're thinking about all of God's promises. You're thinking, wait a second, I thought we were God's people. I thought God said that his temple was his dwelling place on earth in our midst. Did God just throw us off and abandon us? Did God decide he didn't want us to be his people anymore? Is God not powerful enough to protect us? Maybe, maybe the Babylonian gods are actually stronger than Yahweh. These are questions that will be going through the minds of God's people as they hear prophecies of judgment, as they see the smoke rising from Jerusalem and the Lord's temples. There are questions swirling in their minds as they suffer in exile and are haunted by memories of God's city in flames or as they look ahead to what Isaiah is coming. And so it's in the midst of deep questions and doubt and wondering Where do we stand before God that Isaiah gives this message from the Lord? And it's important to look at verses 1 through 3 and see these rhetorical questions that the Lord opens with. He opens with these questions. He says, was I the one that abandoned you? It's the question here. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? You have to know a little bit of the history. If a husband did not want his wife anymore, he could write a certificate of divorce and give it to her and send her away. And so the Lord's question is saying, do do you think that I have sent you away? If so, show me the certificate. Where's the certificate of divorce if you think that's what happened? Or he says, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? And of course, the very idea that God would have creditors is, 
that God would owe something to and that God would have to sell his people off to pay for them is ridiculous. The very idea is preposterous. And so God is saying, no, I have not sent you away. I haven't sent you away to pay off creditors or because I was no longer pleased with you. No, the Lord says, it is your iniquities that caused this separation. It is the sins and the transgressions of the people of Israel that have led to the situation. What is it that leads to exile, destruction of God's city and God's temple? What is it that that leads to this situation where God's people feel abandoned? It It is Israel's sin. It is because you, Israel, have left your God and rejected him, says the Lord. God then reasserts the strength of his hand. He said, there's, there's no question about me being unable to deliver you. It's not, it's not that I'm not strong enough. I, I can, I, my hand is not shortened. It's not that I'm unable to redeem. Rather, it's, it's my rebuke that is leading to these situations. My rebuke is strong enough, in fact, to dry up the sea. There's no question of God's power. There's no question of God's unwillingness or, or lack of care for his people. Israel will go into exile. They will cease to experience the blessing of God's land because of their sin. Maybe you could, you could imagine a scenario in which a, a, a family of two parents plan an event during an evening and their son neglects to do his homework for three days leading up to the event completely forgetting about it. And when the day of the event comes, the son suddenly panics about all the work he hasn't done, realizing he has to go attend this event that his parents have, have planned. And he can imagine him coming to his parents and saying, I can't believe you would schedule an event tonight. You're setting me up for failure because I have to go do this instead of my homework. And of course, the parents would say, no, we have not set you up for failure. It is your procrastination. It is your sins that have led us to this situation. And that's, that's what God is doing in these first few verses here. As Israel cries out in the agony of, of her captivity, whether it's the, the thought of her captivity coming or as Isaiah's anticipating her, her cries when they get there, the devastation that they see, God graciously draws near. And I want us to see this as God's grace. Because God could say, you sinned, you're done. I don't even need to answer you. But God graciously draws near and answers Israel's groans and calls and says, Israel, it is your sin that has brought this upon you. This is the just result that I promised you when you rebelled against me. As God points out, the key problem then and now is that when God called, no one answered. For God's people, no one answered. And I think here lies this desperate tension of the Advent season. God has made promises, promises of beauty and of glory, of life and blessing. And he's given us opportunity after opportunity for Israel to attain the salvation and the rest that God has offered. And yet, and yet God's people have failed again and again. God's people lost the Garden of Eden. God's people had to take the wilderness instead of the land flowing with milk and honey. God's people suffered under oppression by foreign kings once they were in the land, and now God's people have been kicked out of the promised land. Again and again, God says he comes back to his people. He forgives. There's chance of redemption. And again and again, we have failure, loss of a blessing. 
Israel's story is this heartbreaking narrative of losing God's blessings because of sin and rebellion again and again and again. But in the midst of this heartbreaking narrative, Israel's failure never seems to bring an end to God's promises. God's promises keep coming back again and again. I, I think this is the tension of this waiting period. We have failed, and yet God's promises are still there. But are we ever going to succeed? Don't you think if you're an Israelite in exile reading back over Genesis through Isaiah, you have to say, God, your promises are still here, but when can we ever succeed? I love, I love um, the words of a children's Bible, the big picture story Bible. Some of you know this children's Bible. And the author expresses this feeling that they must be feeling as he comes between the Testaments, as he's talking about the time after the exile, waiting for Jesus. And he says, God's people had to be wondering, will God ever redeem his people? Will they ever be rescued in order to find rest forever in his place? Will they ever receive his blessings and in turn be a blessing to the nations? Or will our sin and our failure always bring an end to our hope? That's the tension of Advent. That's the cry of Israel who knows God's promises but has failed again and again. And waiting, waiting. When will God fulfill his promises and how can it possibly come about? Well, then we step into verse 4. And in verse 4, the Lord again offers hope. But the hope of this passage is stunning and incredibly powerful. And I, want us, I don't want us to miss the significance of what God does. See, God has promised a Messiah. We know that a Messiah is coming if we have read God's word. Back in chapter 42 of Isaiah, God said that he was going to send a servant. But here in chapter 50, and, and it happened in the previous chapter, in chapter 49 as well, God doesn't just tell us about the servant that he's going to send. The servant actually shows up and speaks. I don't know if any of you will remember the news story that was all over the headlines all the way back 14 years ago, Thanksgiving Day 2003. Probably not, but when I read this passage, I thought about it. In 2003, in the midst of fighting and conflict in Iraq, Instead of sending a video greeting to the American troops fighting in Iraq, President George W. Bush flew a stealth mission on Air Force One. Not even his own parents were aware that this was happening. And he showed up in Baghdad on the very airport that the day before a military plane had been shot down by rebels. And he walked into the tent where the troops were eating dinner and began to serve them their Thanksgiving dinner himself. Isn't that so much different? Sure, the troops would have appreciated a video conference call wishing them a Merry Thanksgiving. But, but imagine seeing the president actually show up in the tent and begin serving you. That's what the Lord's servant does in this passage. God doesn't just say, I'm sending you a servant. That's, that's great. We, God's promises are sure. They're solid. We can trust them. But here, God actually pulls back the windows of heaven and lets us into the throne room conversations between the Father and the Son and allows the Son, the servant of God, to speak directly to his people. What could be more 
comforting and assuring than to hear from this Savior himself. So I want to look at these verses, verses 4 through 9, and I want to see two things that the Lord's servant emphasizes in these verses. First, the Lord's servant emphasizes that he will succeed exactly where Israel has failed. While Israel has lost the Lord's blessings again and again because of their sin, the servant comes and the first thing he promises is that he will obey the Lord God perfectly. Look at the the language and the phrases of verses 4 through 6. The servant says that he will speak perfectly because the Lord has taught his tongue. His tongue is one taught by the Lord. And because the Lord has taught his tongue, the servant will comfort and sustain others perfectly. He says, I will know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. And then he says that morning after morning, the Lord God will awaken my ear so that it will be taught. This is no one time, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you everything you need to know. This is the morning by morning sustaining of the Spirit of God that enables and guarantees the obedience of the Lord's servant. And because, verse 5 says, because the Lord God has opened my ear, the servant says, I will not be rebellious. And actually he says, I was not rebellious because his obedience has already begun in the eternal plan of God. I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. And then in verse 6, we find out that even in the face of opposition, suffering, shame, and oppression, the servant will not hide his face. He will not turn back or cease to obey. Here we get a sneak peek at the perfect obedience of the servant of the Lord, our Savior. The Lord's servant will obey the Lord in every way at all times. He will be the first perfectly obedient Israelite. And so he will be qualified to open the door to the Lord's blessings. Rightly so, we put a lot of emphasis on Jesus' death and a resurrection. But let's not miss the significance of his obedience his obedience that the servant of the Lord highlights here in a very passage where Israel has lost the Lord's blessings again because of disobedience. It's because of Jesus' obedience. His perfect obedience qualifies him to stand before the Father. And when we are united to him, we then are qualified to stand before the Father as well. Not because of our obedience, but because we're united to the one who perfectly obeyed and stands before his Father. We are united to Jesus by faith so that we can say because he obeyed, we are counted as having obeyed in union with him. And so his obedience is is a significant reason for us to thank and praise Jesus. When we see our failures day after day, when we wake up grumpy or respond with harsh anger, when we are consumed in fearful anxiety, every time we fail to to love as the Lord calls us, when we see our failure, we know that, that we are hiding in the perfections of our Savior, our perfections of our Savior, who lived out his Godhood in perfect obedience. And so here we see when the Savior says, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. He is the one that we stand with, covered by, before our Father. 
I think this is very applicable to us. It is our hope on a daily basis. As we see our disobedience, we find our hope in the one who obeyed. We are hidden in him. The second thing the servant emphasizes is that his obedience and his salvation comes because the Lord helps him and is with him. You see this starting in verse 7 where the servant says, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Verses 7 and 9 actually repeat that same line, The Lord God helps me. The the servant of the Lord is going to be called to go through shame and suffering. And we know this because he just said he's going to give his back to those who strike him and his cheek to those who pluck out his beard. These are two highly shameful and painful acts. But in the midst of saying he's going to go through these shameful and painful acts, the servant then claims that he is not going to be shamed or disgraced. There's a tension here in these verses. How is it that the servant says that he's not going to be shamed or disgraced in verse 7, and yet he's just gone through these shameful acts? Well, he tells us in verse 8, It is because the Lord helps him and will vindicate him. Now that's all that the servant says right now. All he says is that the Lord will vindicate him. But from our perspective, we look back and see a hint of resurrection. How is it that the the servant of the Lord is not shamed? It's because though he goes through what many would consider the most shameful death and humiliation possible, he is then raised in glory by his father, So the New Testament says that it is the Father justifying or vindicating him in the resurrection. It's the glory of the resurrection that is God's help, God's vindication that keeps the servant from shame. But just as the servant's uh, obedience becomes credited to us or applied to us when we are united to him through faith, this blessing also becomes ours. When we are united to Jesus, the Lord helps us. The Lord God vindicates and justifies us. And the Lord sustains us. And I want you to read verses 8 and 9 and think ahead to the New Testament. Because these very words become applied to us when we're united with Christ. See what the servant says. He says, He who vindicates me is near, so who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? And if you read these words, your mind, I think, has to go ahead to Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul says of all those who trust in Christ, he says, who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised who is at the right hand of God and interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer he gives is nothing. There's the same questions. Because when we put our faith in Christ Jesus, we are united to him. And the blessings that God pours out on his son, the servant, he then pours out on us when we are hidden in him. And so as we read these verses, as we read the servant of the Lord, the son of God, declaring with, with jubilant uh, joy and victory that no one will condemn him or declare him guilty because his Father vindicates him. We who have put our faith in Christ now have the privilege, the astounding privilege of saying the same thing. As we stand united to Christ by faith, no one can condemn us or declare us guilty. 
because we are united to the one whom God has forever and perfectly vindicated. See, the surprising glory of God's plan is to take everything that is true of Jesus, his beloved son, the obedient servant, the savior of his people, and make it ours if we trust in Jesus as our king. That includes his obedience, which is counted towards us. It includes God's presence. It includes God's help. It includes God's sustaining us through suffering and shame. It includes God's justifying or vindicating us publicly in the end. It includes the assurance that any who would condemn us will wore out like garments because the Lord God is our help. And this hope, this hope of the servant is now our hope as well. So here we have the surprise speech from the servant himself. But what about Israel? How will they respond? How will they respond when this servant shows up? Well, verses 10 and 11 conclude with an appeal. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? You see that we've stepped out of the words of the servant himself. And now Isaiah is giving this question. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? The passage that we've read, Isaiah 50, started with God's condemnation. When I call, no one answers. So how will Israel respond to the voice of his servant when his servant shows up? To those who walk in darkness and do not see the light, the call is to trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. That's Isaiah's call here in verse 10. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of his God and rely on his God. In the midst of darkness and uncertainty, the Lord calls on those who fear him and listen to his servant to trust him. And to trust him is further defined as to rely on him, to lean on him, to rest on him as God uh, his God, to rest on his God as, as the word may be defined. And this is such a good picture of faith. What does it mean to have faith in God's servant? It means to rely on him, to lean on him, to rest on him. When there is nothing else to hold us up, we lean on him. When we don't know what's ahead, we trust in him. On the other hand, the temptation in the midst of darkness What do we do when we're surrounded by darkness and uncertainty? The temptation is to light our own torch and try to find our own way through. When a difficult situation comes, we try to make our own light, find our own path. And that's the warning that comes in verse 11. Isaiah says, Behold, all you who kindle a fire and equip yourselves with burning torches and walk by the light of your fire that you have kindled, this you shall have from my hand. You will lie down in torment. This summons in verses 10 and 11 is the same summons for us. How many times do we try to create meaning or discover ways to find comfort or to light our own torch and find our own way to, to light up an avenue or to cope with life and find some happiness? I'm sure many of us can think of people of all ages, teens, adults, who in small ways or large ways are lighting our own torches to try to find our way through. For some, it's maybe expressed in habits of dishonesty and lying as we attempt to wade through a life where, 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 where things that we want seem to be elusive. 
For others, perhaps it's drugs or pornography or other things that we use to dull the pain of life and try to find some happiness or pleasure. For others, perhaps money and career are the guiding star that offer us a goal or some meaning in life and keep us going. But the Lord says that if we try to light our own torches and walk by the light of our own fire, we will end up only in torment. A few years ago, scientists did a fascinating experiment. You know the proverbial lost in the woods, you end up going in circles. Well, scientists wanted to test this. So they took some people in a very large, wide open field and blindfolded them and said, you've seen this field. All I'd like you to do is walk from this end to the other. Blindfolded. Well, people were blindfolded and without fail, every one of them veered off course and the vast majority of them moved into a perpetual circular pattern, no more than 60 feet in diameter. You see, when we're blindfolded and we don't know where we're going, we get lost and move into tiny circles left to ourselves. We are incapable of walking in a fixed line. The study concluded in this, with these words, without the use of an external directional reference, humans are not able to maintain a fixed course. I think that's exactly what the Bible is telling us spiritually. When we face the confusion of cultural influences and voices, the spiritual darkness of trying to figure out meaning and purpose and moral codes on our own, we end up walking in circles. We end up lighting our own torches and ending in torment. Because we cannot just try to logically think through what makes the most sense. We can't rely on our emotions or feelings for what must be right or wrong. We must have an external guide. And so Isaiah summons is summons to the word of God and the voice of his servant. Where is hope? Fearing God and listening to the voice of his servant. As I thought of this picture, I could not get out of my mind an image of myself walking through a landscape that's dark and full of much confusion. But I'm clinging firmly to a guideline that has God's word written on it taking steps that are sometimes more and sometimes less confident, but always clinging to that guide rope and relying on it, trusting it to keep me safe and bring me through. That's the call. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? We live on the other side of the servant's work now. We know and have experienced our union with Jesus and the blessings of of having his obedience counted to us and having God's help and vindication. But we still know something of waiting, don't we? We're still waiting for the arrival of this Savior. Maybe we can't fully appreciate the agonizing longing for that rescue that Israel experienced for centuries, but we're still waiting for the final victory that has been promised. And as we wait, our call is the same as Israel's. Fear the Lord. Listen to the voice of his servant. Trust in the name of the Lord. Rely on our God, for the servant of the Lord has accomplished it all for us, and all the blessings of God come from him. He is our hope, our confidence, our joy, and our way through. Let's pray. Father, you have sent your son, the servant who obeyed perfectly. You were his help, and you have vindicated him. And then, And the amazing step, you have called us to faith in him and through faith united us to him so that all the blessings you have given your own son, the servant of the Lord, are ours. 
What a glorious hope. Would you call our hearts to lean heavily on you, to trust in you and cling to you and your word and the voice of your servant is our way through. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.